Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah, good. Um, Did someone say no? Good afternoon. I'm Judy Langhans from the Center for Continuing Education, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for a November session of Nursing Grand Rounds. I would also like to welcome anyone who is viewing this session online. Just a few housekeeping details. Please be sure to sign in on the attendance sheet. And for those viewing online, you may email me with any questions during the presentation. And be sure to email me within an hour after the presentation to let me know that you viewed this session online. Please include your name, degree, and your zip code and your email. Um, my email is judith.m.langhands at hitchcock.org. Um, everyone will receive a link to an online evaluation at the, by the end of the day today. The Center for Continuing Education values your feedback and hopes you take a few minutes to complete the evaluation. Your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript within one month. Um, there are instructions on how to access your online transcript by the attendance sheet. And finally, please silence your cell phones and pagers. Our presentation today is entitled, My Patient Smokes, My Patient Chews, What's a Nurse to Do? Our, our speakers are Paula Karen, Melinda Goodwin, Betsy Maislin, and Ellen Pryor, and they will introduce themselves. Neither our speakers nor any members of the planning committee identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Please join me in welcoming our presenters. Well, welcome. Can you all hear me all right? Good. I'm Betsy Maislin. I'm a nurse practitioner. I work with thoracic surgery, and I'm a tobacco treatment specialist. And as Judy said, I'm joined by my colleagues, my fellow tobacco treatment team members, Ellen Pryor, Melinda Goodwin, and Paula uh, Karen, and we'll each have a little part in this today. So welcome. As she said, our title today is of our talk is My Patient Smokes, My Patient Chews, What's a Nurse to Do? And we're going to show you how we've come a long way, baby, and hopefully you'll have uh, more information when you left here on what you can do. So we have nothing to disclose. And our learning objectives are as follows. We want to help you learn how to verbalize, by the end of this, how to verbal to be able to verbalize how to approach a patient, a visitor, or a staff member who's smoking on our campus, on the DH campus. You should be able to list at least three of the seven FDA-approved first-line medications for tobacco cessation. You might even be able to tell us what all seven are, but we'd like you to be able to know at least three. And to help you develop strategies to offer more effective tobacco cessation counseling to the inpatient, the clinic patient, and the employee tobacco use population. So first, I'm going to just give you a quick little thing, you know, where we come a long way, baby. Just a little insight as to some of you, if you went to the service club dinner, may have seen this because I got interviewed about what's changed in all the years that I've been here. And I talked about tobacco. Whoops. Sorry. Nope. Here we go. Oh my God. They won't do it.
and play a huge step forward and really be sure in the right direction. So now there's no smoking anywhere on the entire campus. We make a huge statement to the patients and to our visitors and to people who work here that we believe that this is an important enough thing where maybe our campus so there it is, a little bit of background. Oh my gosh. Everything was working perfectly before. And for some reason, I can't get this to go down. I just want it to go smaller. You know, you think that we didn't actually run this through, but we did. <laughs> That's going to be a problem. I can't get to the talk. I apologize. Oh my gosh. I actually have done that and we'll do this, but I don't really want to get rid of it completely. Good, now we're back. Sorry, don't know what happened there, but there you have it. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's see. I'm so embarrassed. That's terrible. I know, so that's terrible. It's just what I didn't want. Yes, thank you. That's awful. We'll try again. One more time with feeling. Okay. All right. Now I think we're safe. <laughs> so, uh, in the words of C. Everett Koop, uh, cigarette smoking is the chief single avoidable cause of death in our society and the most important public health issue of our time. All forms of tobacco are harmful. Don't be fooled. Don't let people tell you one is better than the other. So just some information about trends in adult smoking by sex in the U.S. between 1955 and 2009. As you can see, that in 1955, which is pretty much post-World War II, we had nearly 55% of males and almost 25% of females were smokers. And over time, we've made great inroads. We currently have about 23.5% of men and 17, almost 18% of women. But 20% of adults are current smokers. Of those current smokers, 70% want to quit, but they don't necessarily know how. Annual U.S. deaths attributable to smoking, just some background for you. You know, we've got large numbers of cardiovascular diseases, lung cancer, respiratory diseases, secondhand smoke, cancers other than lung. Total, you know, nearly 500,000 deaths annually from smoking-related diseases. And then annual smoking attributable economic costs, which are huge. Healthcare expenditures, 96.7 billion. Lost productivity, 97 billion. Billion. Total state, federal uh, Medicaid programs, excuse me, 30.9, and Medicare, the federal program, 18.9 billion. The total economic burden of smoking per year, $194 billion. To society, that equates to $10.28 per pack of cigarettes smoked. So it's a huge problem. Henry Waxman, who was a, a representative from California to the Congress, he's the gentleman that led the fight in Congress to expose the tobacco industry. 
their harmful practices, and he led the, uh, the rally to enact tobacco control legislation. He was responsible for forcing uh, executives of the seven major tobacco companies to testify and for the first time expose the tobacco industry's deceptive use of advertising and so forth targeting children. So he was quoted in 1994 as having said, it is sometimes easier to invent fiction than to face the truth. The truth is that cigarettes are the single most dangerous consumer product ever sold. Nearly half a million Americans die every year as a result of tobacco. This is an astounding, almost incomprehensible statistic. Imagine our nation's outrage if two fully loaded jumbo jets crashed each day, killing all aboard. And yet that is the same number of Americans that kill cigarettes every 24 hours. So why is tobacco treatment a priority now? Well, the DH vision is for the right patient, right time, right treatment. It's the right thing to do. We should be doing this. The Joint Commission, the Center of Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, Meaningful Use, ACO, we're going to be graded on how do we do with treating our patients for tobacco problems and tobacco issues. And our reimbursement will be linked to how well do we do with this. So again, it's a good time. So what do we use here? In Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we use evidence-based standard of practice and assessing and treating tobacco users. Uh, are the main Bible that we go by is the uh, US Public Health Service guidelines for treating tobacco use and dependence. A little quick background on that. Uh, it was started initially in 1996 where the initial guidelines were published. They've been updated several times, most recently in 2008. And when they did this, they looked at almost 9,000 articles on how did people quit smoking, what works best, and they were able to compile these guidelines and share this information with the tobacco treatment specialist world and with all of you, anyone who treats for uh, tobacco. So it is evidence-based. That's why you're going to hear us talk about when uh, Paula talks about medications, we're talking about evidence-based. There are a lot of them that aren't, hypnosis, acupuncture, we don't have evidence for those. So what do we know about tobacco users is what we learned from that uh, report and from those uh, guidelines. Evidence-based research recommends combinations of medications and behavioral counseling. It's more effective than either one alone. Strength of evidence is A, it's very high. Strong relationship between the number of counseling sessions when it's combined with medication and the likelihood of successful smoking. Cessation, again, evidence A. We know one session is good, two sessions is better, three is about the magic number. More than three, it doesn't actually get better, but we know that this combination works. And treatment delivered by a variety of clinician types, this is where you come in, increases abstinence rates. Therefore, all clinicians should provide interventions. Again, strength of evidence, A. So counseling and medication, we know that counseling alone is good. Estimated abstinence rates of about 14.6%, but adding counseling and medication increases by 70% higher, 21%. Clinicians can make a difference, that's all of us. With help from a clinician, the odds of quitting approximately doubles. Compared to patients who receive no assistance from a clinician, patients who received assistance were 1.7 to 2.2 times more likely to quit successfully for five or more months. We have proactive quit lines, Ellen's gonna talk more about those. We know that minimal counseling or no counseling rate, rate uh, might uh, yield an 8.5% quit rate, but that we add quit line counseling and it goes up 60% to 12.7. Also when they add medication, increases your rates of success, even with the quit lines. And medications, we're gonna talk, and Paula is gonna talk about those. We'll go through those and then we're gonna go through our inpatient and outpatient. And then I'm gonna wrap up.
you should be all set. You can either use this or this. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Paula Karen. I'm a nurse practitioner with the Thoracic Oncology Program here in the Cancer Center, and I'm also a tobacco treatment specialist. So why medications? Well, when patients are trying to quit, um, we want to help them manage their cravings because when they're dealing with cravings, it's pretty hard to look at any other aspect of their smoking behaviors and make changes. There are seven medications currently approved as first-line treatment for tobacco treatment. Three are over-the-counter and four are by prescription. Bupropion is marketed as Wellbutrin, uh, which is an antidepressant, or Zyban, which is uh, an anti-smoking agent. This medication should be started two weeks before the patient's actual quit date. So for inpatient use, it makes it a little less desirable if we're trying to manage cravings while somebody's actually in-house, because usually by the end of two weeks, they're long gone from uh, inpatient services. Um, we're not quite sure exactly how it works, but one of, the, one of the theories is that it actually works in the craving center in the brain to actually reduce the craving for, for nicotine. The most common side effects are dry mouth and insomnia. Uh, weight gain is also an issue, so uh, for most of you are probably aware that when people quit smoking, one of the big issues that they worry about, and it is a real issue, is weight gain. So that is uh, one of the undesirable side effects of this medication for people. It is contraindicated for someone who has a history of seizures or someone who does have a history of an eating disorder. It's recommended for use for at least uh, 7 to 12 weeks, and some evidence shows that um, maintaining therapy for up to six months improves the chance of a more durable quit. The uh, nicotine gum and lozenge are both available over the counter. They both come as two and four milligram strengths. We usually use the two milligram strength for people who smoke a half, more than a half an hour or more after they first get up in the morning. For somebody who smokes within 30 minutes of getting up in the morning, we usually use the four milligram strength. Um, the recommended, recommended use for both the gum and the lozenge is to use one piece of gum or lozenge every one to two hours for the first six weeks of a, a person's quit attempt. The lozenge should be used, uh, have no less than nine a day, and the maximum should be no more than 20 a day. The lozenge should be dissolved, not chewed or swallowed. And the most common side effects are nausea, dyspepsia, um, um, indigestion, heartburn, hiccups um, with the gum or the lozenge. With all forms of nicotine replacement that are taken orally, the gum, the lozenge, the inhaler, um, they are, the absorption can be impaired by any acidic foods or fluids. So we usually recommend that people do not eat or drink within 15 minutes before or after using any one of these products in order to, to um, assure that it's uh, maximally effective. With the gum, we recommend that people use one piece every one to two hours no more than 24 pieces in 24 hours, again, for about a six-week time period. The gum works most effectively if it's chewed and parked, meaning uh, the person first takes a piece of gum, chews it until the flavor is released, and, and uh, with the non-flavored, it's just a peppery taste. Once that flavor is released, they should park it in their cheek and leave it there until the flavor is gone, and then once it's gone, they should pull it back out of their cheek, chew it some more, release the flavor again. Um, they should continue doing this piece of gum lasts somewhere upwards of 30 minutes. Once the flavor's gone, they should take it out, throw it away, and then restart with another piece of gum. Uh, common side effects uh, with this include also um, 
uh, indigestion, hiccups. Uh, some people who are using the gum complain of mouth soreness or even jaw soreness. But uh, some of that is just because of the chewing mechanism. And for somebody who chooses to chew it nonstop, um, you know, oftentimes they are quite uncomfortable. Uh, this is just some evidence that shows that uh, this was just a single study with 1,800 people on it. But again, there was a, a 23, almost 24% quit rate with the um, uh, use of the four milligram gum. The nicotine inhaler is only available by prescription, and the name, the, the description inhaler is actually a misnomer. It's more like a puffer. It's actually absorbed through the buccal membrane and not inhaled into the lungs, as one would say an albuterol inhaler or something like that. It comes as a uh, four, with a four milligram cartridge with about 80 puffs. It fits into this little, um, this little holder here. The one complaint we hear often is that people say it doesn't feel like a cigarette because it's really only about this long. I lost mine, so I don't have it to show you. But um, So people say it doesn't feel like a cigarette, but basically they put the cartridge in, snap the cartridge in, and then puff on it. People should use no less than six and no more than 16 cartridges a day for maximum effectiveness. Um, and again, the, the caveat about not eating or drinking 15 minutes before or after. Side effects include local irritation in the mouth, and some people do develop um, coughing from it. And this is just a picture of uh, somebody actually using one. There's also a nicotine nasal spray, which is less commonly known about. It's also available only by prescription. A dose consists of a spray into each nostril. Um, so two sprays equal a total of a milligram. Person should use one to two doses an hour with a minimum of eight sprays of eight doses, so one spray in each nostril a day, and a maximum of 40 doses a day. The most common side effects are uh, irritation. Um, some people get really pretty significant burning with the, with the nasal spray. Um, it's less commonly used. Some, some centers tend to use it more often, more than others. But uh, of the nicotine replacement products, it is uh, the most highly um, addictive. So um, with the, with the at-will products, the nasal spray, the, the uh, inhaler, the gum, the lozenge, one of the things that we sometimes hear from patients is that they don't work. And oftentimes the reason is because they do not use them aggressively enough. So when we recommend these products for patients, we recommend they take them on a schedule and give them a time frame that they should use these products and uh, encourage them to do so and to treat it as they would their blood pressure medicine or any other medication that was prescribed to be taken on a schedule. Otherwise, they're not as effective if the person isn't using them to maximum capacity. And then they'll report to you, well, they didn't, it didn't work for me. It worked for my friend, but it didn't work for me. So things like the nicotine patch, the bupropion, and the varenicline, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, because they are sort of a, you take them on a schedule, um, they are sometimes more effective. The patches, as you probably know, come uh, over the counter. They're available in three different sizes. A patch should be applied every 24 hours. The most common side effects that we hear with them are a skin rash. About 50% of people will develop some irritation of the skin where the patch is applied. It is not a true allergy. It's usually irritation from the adhesive in the patch. Very few, very small percentage of people actually break out like in hives where like really you don't want to use the patch. And for those who are just having the skin irritation, we usually recommend that they rotate the patch and apply uh, over-the-counter steroid cream to manage that irritation, and that usually takes care of it. The other common side effect we hear from the patch is that people sometimes get vivid dreams and it interferes with their sleep. 
Um, so for people that that happens, we recommend they take it off at bedtime and then just reapply it in the morning. I've heard that people in Hollywood actually put a patch on at bedtime for the dreams because it helps them to write better. So, so some people actually enjoy these dreams and find them quite, quite interesting. So, so we usually recommend that people use the product eight weeks or longer. If you look on the back of the box, it's going to tell you eight weeks, but for some people that's just not enough. For all of the nicotine replacement, there are guidelines about how long people should use it, but in reality, some people need it longer in order to have a sustained, durable quit. So for those people, we do not rush them to get off the products because if that's what's going to help them quit, then we need to, we need to meet the patient where they're at with their cravings. A patient taking the patch off to smoke is ridiculous because one, it, like any other patched medication, the medication's already in the system. So if I take my patch off and go smoke outside the door, I'm smoking with a patch on because that medication has not been eliminated from my system. So um, we encourage people who are using a patch to try to quit if they slip and have a cigarette, if they don't slip deliberately, whatever, not to take that patch off because uh, for many people that's just a form of sabotage for their quit attempt. So we encourage them to keep the patch and confirm that they want to continue uh, to quit. Now, some people may need more than one patch. So one patch um, basically covers people who smoke about a pack a day. However, for a two-pack-a-day smoker, they may need to have two patches on. So, uh, and this is not FDA approved at this point, but those of us who do this work do this because if we don't meet a patient's craving where they're at, they're not going to succeed. And you've probably all heard from patients who say, the patch didn't work for me. I kept smoking right as long as I wore it. So what that usually tells to me when I hear that is that they didn't have enough nicotine replacement. Um, patients will also ask, why would you put nicotine on me if you're trying to get me to quit? And the answer to that is cigarettes contain, or cigarette smoke contains more than 4,000 chemicals. The chemicals are what cause illness, but it's the nicotine that's the addictive property. So if we can at least get them away from all those chemicals, we're already off to a good start. We just replace the nicotine so they can make the behavioral change and uh, you know, plan their quit and get through their quit, and then we can wean the nicotine replacement off. But in the meantime, we've gotten them off all those chemicals. So that's the reason why a nicotine replacement product is not as evil as a cigarette. As far as smokeless tobacco, uh, that one sometimes deciding what to put uh, or what dose of nicotine replacement to use on a person is a little less clear. However, general guidelines: if somebody's using three cans or more uh, or pouches, uh, three cans or pouches or more a week, we usually double patch them, so two patches to, to meet their craving. We patch them or whatever the nicotine replacement product is, and then we assess where we're at. Do they need some more PRN medication? what's the best way to manage them, but at least that's a good starting point. So um, people with smokeless tobacco go through the same type of withdrawal as people who are smoking cigarettes and need to be treated with the same guidelines that we're recommending here. As Betsy already mentioned, combinations of medications have been shown to be more effective. So for instance, combining the bupropion with the nicotine patch or combining the patch with the gum, the lozenge, the inhaler, uh, basically, I, I describe it to patients as it's, you've got your mainstay, you've got your patch, and we're going to give you something for breakthrough or your cravings so that you've got some control when you feel like you need something else besides what, what you're already using. So there is good evidence for combining products. The last medication I'll talk about is varenicline, which is also known as Shantix. It's available by prescription. 
Um, it's indicated only for tobacco cessation. It's not, it has no other indications for, for medical use at this point. Uh, the way it works is patients usually start that first week ramping up their medication. The dose is escalated over the first week. And we started a week before their actual quit date. During that week, um, we tell them if they feel like not smoking, it's okay, but they don't have to quit. And many patients will report, I forgot to smoke. Um, I lost interest. It doesn't taste good. I'm, it's not, I'm not feeling as good. It, it's not the pleasurable experience it was before. So we are very happy when we hear that. Um, it needs to be used with caution for people with renal impairment because it is excreted renally. The most common side effects that we hear are nausea, so we recommend people take it with a, a full stomach, and uh, vivid dreams, and sometimes people have disturbing dreams. Um, there is, so it's been shown it can be up to 33% 33, um, 33 effective for a quit rate. So this is, it's, it's an excellent medication when it works. Now, there's um, bad press out there. It does have an FDA black box warning. So some people who have taken varenicline or Shantix have had dark thinking, have become depressed, have become suicidal. So whenever we, so we need to educate patients about that when they do take it. However, the incidence of this happening is very, very low. Some people don't get the dark thinking, but they do get the very, very vivid, disturbing dreams, dreams that kind of stay with them all day long, like they can't get rid of them. So for those people, when this happens, we tell them they need to come off the medication. We don't want to take a chance. But for people for whom it works well, it works really well, and um, they often have a very uh, durable quit. We usually recommend they take it at least six months because statistics have shown that their chances of quit at using it for six months are better than a shorter period of time. And um, it can be repeated, so some people will, um, you know, will need to will go back to smoking, and we can we can use it again. And then lastly, um, the electronic cigarette, which you probably all heard about. This is a schematic. Basically, it's it looks like a cigarette. Uh, it works with a battery uh, that heats up a microprocessor, that heats up a little chamber that's got. Uh, God knows what in it, and uh, the patient, uh, the person can smoke with it. Um, it is not approved as a smoking cessation device, nor is, has it been proven to be healthier than uh, an actual cigarette, which is sometimes the claims that are being made about it now. Nobody is regulating these products. They come from all over. Everybody's making them, including the tobacco companies. So they can say whatever they want on the packaging because nobody's labeling it. They can put whatever they want in it because nobody's regulating it. So some that say they don't contain nicotine have been tested actually do contain nicotine. So, um, some have been tested and contain some of the same chemicals that are found in cigarettes. Uh, one was tested and when antifreeze was found in it. Others were found with, with contaminated with uh, drugs, prescription drugs. So we do not, the, the party line for tobacco treatment is we don't recommend these as, as a device to help with uh, smoking cessation because there's no evidence for it. So there is no magic bullet, as I tell all my patients. Medications are great, but unless they're combined with behavioral change and the counseling, as Betsy mentioned, uh, patients are, when they come off the medications, are very likely to go back to smoking unless they have made some of the changes that they need to make. Hi there. I'm Melinda Goodwin. I'm a health coach for Live Well, Work Well. My nursing background is in primary care, public health, and worksite wellness. And so woven through the past 15 years has been the common theme of promoting health-related behavioral change um, among patients and community members. And so as that practice evolves, so does tobacco treatment. So we're going to talk a little bit about the intervention today because 
Though hiring a professional actor dressed as death to stalk his every move finally broke Ted of his smoking addiction, really not the easiest way to go, right? Right. So as we talk about the intervention, there are a few overarching themes that I want us to kind of hold on to. And the first is that tobacco dependence is a chronic disease, okay? And that means that it requires repeated intervention and multiple attempts to quit. I'm going to say it again. Tobacco dependence is a chronic disease, okay? Systems should identify and treat all tobacco users. I'm a complete system and policy nerd, and so um, really passionate about systematizing our approach to addressing tobacco cessation. Um, tobacco dependence treatments are effective. Every patient willing should use counseling and medications. If they're willing to do it, that's the best line of treatment. And then brief tobacco dependence treatment works. So what's brief tobacco treatment? What is that? Ask, advise, refer. So this is the bare minimum evidence-based care that we should be giving to every patient at every visit who uses tobacco, okay? Asking about tobacco use, advising the user to quit, and referring to other resources for assisting in the quit and arranging for follow-up. We get a little bit more into the meat with the five A's, and as we go through the five A's, I want to talk both about the science of the intervention, so we know that this intervention increases quit rates, and the art of nursing, and so the quality of the intervention. What control do we have as practitioners about the way that we give these interventions? And so asking about tobacco use, identifying and documenting tobacco use and status for every patient at every visit. So if I ask you, Deb, do you smoke? No. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> She's boxed in, right? She can give me one of two answers, yes or no. What if I ask, tell me about tobacco? What answers could you possibly give? I smoke, but I'm thinking about quitting. I chew. I quit five years ago. I'm not thinking about quitting opens up the line for communication, gives people a chance, gives you a little room to do some work, right? Do people sort of feel the difference there? Yeah. Advising to quit in a clear, strong, personalized message. Every patient, every clinician relationship is different. And so what's the art of the intervention, right? I strongly advise you to quit. Maybe in some cases that's it. Maybe in some cases it's, gosh, if there was one thing that I would want for you and for your well-being, it would be for you to quit smoking or quit chew, right? Same message, different styles, so you know the person you're working with or you don't, and you have to go by feel, right? Assess willingness to make a quit attempt. Is the tobacco user willing to make a quit attempt at this time? Okay, so picture yourself. You're in an exam room, and you're in a Johnny, and you may or may not know who's coming in to see you, and you may be coming in for something that hurts or is uncomfortable, and you're already on the defense because there's this stigma about tobacco, and someone says, so are you ready to quit? What answers could you possibly give me? Yes or no, and what answer are you more likely to give me? Because by the way, I gotta pick up my kids at 310, and I have three more things at work that I have to do, and I'm cold and I'm nervous. Right? So what if I said, where are you in terms of quitting? Right? Really positively framed, assuming that the ultimate goal is to quit and that I think you can do it. 
So where are you? And that gives people room to say, and people have said to me hundreds of times, I'm nowhere near thinking about that. Okay, let's move on. You know, that gives us a rapport and I can respect their answer. People can say, well, I'm hedging or I really want to or I'm afraid or um, any answer that someone gives you gives you some room to work and gives the next clinician some room to work. Does that make sense? You feel okay? And so if we can do these three things really well, the assisting and arranging can either be done at the visit level or at the intervention level, or you can refer off because we've got resources that we're going to talk about. So if we can do those top three things well and then either continue with the assisting in the quit attempt and arranging for follow-up or passing that off to us, um, then we've done it a real service to our patients. Things I want to really sort of drive home. Tobacco use is a vital sign. What do we use vital signs for? Who do we use them for? We use them for when a patient comes in or when we're uh, working with a patient, a quick down and dirty way to prioritize our time with that patient, right? So if someone comes in with a hurt toe and they're audibly wheezing, does that change the way that we interact with them, right? Does that change our priorities? So we're not going to send them away without addressing what they came in for, but it changes, as nurses, the way that we would think about that intervention, right? So if tobacco's up there as a vital sign, anytime a person says they're using the tobacco, it changes the way we think about using that intervention, right? Because tobacco's a chronic disease. And people who have the chronic disease who are actively using need treatment. So second bullet, we're really into Star Wars in my house right now. We've got the Princess Leia hair going. My daughter's seven years old, and so I've been thinking about Jedi mind tricks. So the Jedi mind trick of today is tobacco is a chronic disease. And so if you can all leave today and carry that around with you, that tobacco is a chronic disease, tobacco is a chronic disease, tobacco is a chronic disease. So we're going to think about it in those terms, right? So discussion one, patient comes into the clinic for a URI. Past medical history includes hypertension. Low-grade temp, respiration's normal, blood pressure's 198 over 110. They say, I'm just here for my cold. What are the chances that that person's going to get out of that room without a more comprehensive look at history and feelings and current treatment practices about the blood pressure, right? And what are the chances that they're going to leave without a follow-up plan? We better say none, right? Scenario two, patient comes into the clinic for a URI. Past medical history includes tobacco use. Uh, Low-grade temp, mildly elevated heart rate, respiration's fine, blood pressure fine, smoking a pack a day, I'm just here for my cold. Different, huh? Shouldn't be, right? What are the chances this person's going to get out of that visit without a more comprehensive assessment and a follow-up plan for their chronic illness? Just saying, right? <laughs> so what resources do we have here? The tool for assessment, I'm sure you all, you've all seen our electronic medical record, kind of walks you through the three um, ask, advice, refer, or the five A's. So we're asking, are you a current everyday smoker or a someday smoker or a former smoker or a never smoker? And all of those answers give you a chance to bond with someone and say, wow, that's awesome. You've never used tobacco. Unbelievable. You used to smoke and now you don't. Wow, you're thinking about it. Or you're only smoking some days. Where are you with that? Um, 
We can assess severity of addiction with um, assessing pack years, and so that's packs per day times years of use, okay? And then we can assess smokeless tobacco. If folks have quit, we want to put their quit date in, so all providers can sort of positively reinforce and check in. So someone whose quit date was two weeks ago, that's a different conversation than someone whose quit date was 10 years ago, right? We don't skip any of it, but it's a different flavor to the conversation. And then readiness to quit, counseling given, and comments. And thinking about the next clinician. So if there's a comment, want to quit for daughter's wedding, pop it in there. The next person can use that. Because what we know about tobacco treatment is it might not happen. Your job is the intervention. You can't make people quit. right? Your job is to give the best intervention that you can in real time. Okay? If you can give somebody a nugget to move with the next time they see the person, hey, how's that going? I see your daughter was getting married, and you were thinking about quitting tobacco. Where are you with that? right? And so then we refer on. So you have a couple of choices for referrals. For employees and uh, dependents, you can refer to Live Well, Work Well for tobacco treatment. That's me. Um, you can refer to Lebanon Hemonk. You can refer to Care Management. Bedford Farms in the South has a tobacco treatment location. So we're available to do tobacco counseling for patients. Everybody familiar with the yellow? Yeah? Why is it yellow and blaring? Because under the must, should, maze, that's a must. So if someone comes in and says that they're using tobacco, you're going to get a big yellow message that says, you haven't done your job if this hasn't been addressed. And that doesn't mean that they have to leave having quit. That means that you have to do the intervention to the best of your ability. That makes sense? Yeah? So what happens to a referral once you've put it in? Sometimes it feels like no man's land out there, right? I clicked it. Now I'm a little nervous. What happens? So what happens is that the referrals received in EDH, the patient is outreached. They're either counseled by phone or in person, right? Referrals can be made to local um, quick groups, support groups, state quit lines, or to maintain with one of us, whatever makes most sense for people, whatever they want to do, right? We can contact the primary care provider for pharmacotherapy, right, if they're open to that. And then we're documenting in the record for the next member of the team, right, so that we can carry on, because we don't always get to see people back, but people have the right to expect that the next person knows what's going on with their chronic diseases, right? In thinking about the relationship-based care model and how we care for patients, colleagues, and self, holding that for employees and their dependents, Live Well, Work Well offers free confidential counseling for all employees and dependents. And then for folks who are on our health insurance, we offer 100% prescription coverage. So it is the Cadillac plan for people who get our health insurance. It's covered at 100%, doesn't go towards the deductible. So know that there's that amazing resource there. Okay. All right, I'm going to hand it off to Ellen, who's more of the expert in the inpatient realm. Thank you all for your attention. And Jedi Mind Trick, tobacco is? Hi there. I'm Ellen Pryor. I'm a tobacco treatment nurse uh, here at Dartmouth. Been doing this since uh, 06, actually, and getting ready for tobacco campus. I work in the Office of Care Management, and I was a 
inpatient CRC, uh, CCM, and now on to tobacco treatment. Um, my responsibilities are um, inpatient uh, clinic and greater community, uh, and a lot of it is education for our um, our doctors, nurses, and anyone who will listen. <laughs> this is very familiar with you because this is the nursing assessment that when you see a patient um, on admission, they're assessed, and this is the admission form and the tobacco questions that are uh, similar to what um, Melinda had reviewed. And as you can see, there's an order set entry there, and so there are, on the inpatient side, physician order sets for tobacco treatment that folks can order, uh, the clinicians can order medications. Upon getting this information that you have on a nursing assessment, it automatically reminds you that patients a tobacco user, it's a chronic disease, it requires treatment. So when you're doing your patient care team rounds, uh, asking the doctor, this patient is a tobacco user, what medication did you want to order for nicotine withdrawal? Because we know that nicotine is addicting and it's very uncomfortable for our patients to be in in-house in a tobacco-free campus and not being able to smoke. So requiring medication is just asking the physician, you know, and they may say, well, I talked to him, they don't want to quit. Well, that, is it, uh, does it apply? Because when you're here for 10 or 12 hours treating patients and then it's the middle of the night and they're really going through acute withdrawal, you want to have your medication ordered. So bringing it up in your team rounds is a real essential thing. So. Your assessment is um, our top notch, and they're very much uh, a part of your work. Uh, when we look at what um, what is the evidence-based practice here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, it's the standard of practice under the uh, United States Public Health Guidelines, which are were refreshed um, and researched again in 2008. That is our Bible that we go by. We have uh, inpatient tobacco treatment team. Similar, it was set up similar to what Mary Wood does in regards to her education for unit-based nurses on on diabetes treatment. Uh, tobacco treatment is set up the same way, so that throughout the house and the clinic and the south. Um, DH1. Um, there have been folks that have taken the, United, the UMass Med online course that um, Dr. Butterly actually has approved for scholarship. Most recently, all of the um, wound care, comprehensive wound care uh, nurses actually have taken that. Uh, so they too are uh, insightful folks that have a little bit advanced knowledge and they're unit based. So on the units, um, that's really an important piece to know that as a nurse, we have the green packets that are on the floor, we have the tobacco, um, uh, we have the quit line referrals that are on the floor where you can, uh, the nurses that are there can facilitate that. I bring this up at this point in regards to the apps that are available because pretty much all of our patients who are in now have a cell phone. And so, you know, along with the green packets that we have, we also, uh, they actually can access this www.smokefree.gov and they have all populations, uh, pregnancy, teens, um, and adults, and you can uh, download the app. It's free, it's evidence-based, it has been, it's out on there um, with support and evidence-based research from the National Institute of Health, the National Cancer Institute, and the CDC. Apps go from 99 cents to $10, and many times those other apps, which I think they amount to almost 200 now, they bring you to a little um, a little app, 
and they mentioned smoking, but they're also marketing the e-cigarette or other uh, nicotine delivery devices like the sticks, the strips, and the orbs. You know, those are nicotine delivery devices that our kids are ingesting. Uh, they, there's no disposable product, so, you know, that, not that that's required, but kids are, have access to that, so it's important for us to know that. Uh, as uh, Melinda said, you know, ask, advise, and refer, you know, discussing with your patient, you know, the nicotine withdrawal is a real, um, it's, it's similar to pain control. Where are people at in regards to the withdrawal and giving consideration to that, that they will have that, not having it now, but they may have it. Um, so um, these are the green packets that we have for adults, uh, whether it's in the birthing pavilion or clinic or in hospital. We have teen tobacco packets that were put together upon input from the uh, PD nurses. Uh, we're working on, uh, always working on a parental one because of parents that smoke of the kids in the NICU and PICU. Um, pregnancy packets we have on the inpatient and the outpatient side. This is the, um, just to remind you about the, the process of referral for an inpatient, it's very similar to if you're looking for, you know, uh, a wound care nurse, PTSTOT, you know, uh, it's under the ancillary services. So that's, there is a process for inpatient referral. I get sidewalk consults, in-basket, emails, telephone calls. Um, so referrals come from all places. Uh, when Melinda mentioned about the Live Well, Work Well slot there, the MHMH care management is me. I get a lot of uh, clinic referrals from uh, internal medicine line. Um, this is the QuitWorks referral that is uh, can be customized for a clinician um, to have your name put in up there and then have it automatically faxed. Care management had been picking up um, the QuitLine referrals from every unit. Um, and faxing them in. And what we do now is we scan them into the chart so that they are there with the goal of getting, um, what they do is they send information back to the provider. So from the clinic side, you know, having uh, physicians be able to do this. We're working on e-faxing, you know, e-faxing in Epic. Mm. We're working on it and they're doing it in some places, uh, but it's a challenge. This is the Vermont Quit Line. Vermont Quit Line, they are a free telephonic uh, counseling service, telephone counseling service that offers free nicotine replacement therapy, the patches, gum, and the lozenge to Vermonters who do not have a prescription plan. In New Hampshire, starting in December, New Hampshire has gotten a grant. They have receiving the um, the tobacco settlement money for 16 years now, and less than 1% of the tobacco settlement money in New Hampshire has gone to public health. It is an ethical issue in my mind. However, in December, New Hampshire quit line, they're going to offer four weeks of patches for those who want to quit and want to commit to having four interventions on the phone. So that's like a wonderful idea. This is the free-for-all that is on the units uh, to be used. It has to have a patient signature, of course. Uh, as you know, we have signage on the inpatient side. Please do not take patients out to smoke. I make rounds on a regular basis, have constant interventions with patients, with visitors in regards to that. Um, I have checked with our risk management, with our, Dr. Beverly is my, is our champion for the tobacco-free campus and I've met with our care management uh, AMD directors in regards to what is, we have a policy for Smoking cessation at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and 
from risk management, Liz Stanton, Dr. Marin's chief of um, uh, medicine, Dr. Butterly, there is no way that a physician can write an order or ask a nurse to take a patient out to smoke or a tobacco-free campus. You know, as um, Melinda said, you know, there is, um, uh, I'm sorry, Paula, in regards to um, taking a patch off, you know, I had an intervention not too long ago, and I think my colleague Betsy, too, had an intervention with a patient who's, who's outside at North Towers by the sign, smoking with butts around her feet. You know, not sure if you know, we are a tobacco-free campus. We do, the doctor can order medication for you as an inpatient, and visitors not taking patients out to smoke, they have, we have free lozenge available at all of the information desks to help visitors not to smoke on our campus. You have a question? If they don't have them any longer, they're available through the outpatient pharmacy. Um, they just have to reorder them from the outpatient pharmacy. They make up the packets, and uh, they can get them through there if they don't have them. Uh, not smoking on a campus, you know, you've seen the sign. It's true. You have interventions. I, you know, it really, not sorry. I'm sorry if you don't know. We're tobacco-free campus. We have free lozenge available. We ask you to put out your butts and take them with you. Uh, we have a lot of butt litter. Um, you know, it's really, I think, just go back here. You know, we have this policy. People can smoke in their car. We have progressive discipline policy for employees. Someone's smoking, you identify who they are, you tell their manager, there's progressive discipline. We have services that are available through Live Well, Work Well for our employees, their dependents. So there's no reason why we can't get folks to have, um, to, to be more efficient and better. We're all responsible for doing it. Uh, we talked about the quit lines. Um, tobacco cessation counseling provided, um, it's, no, it's free to all Americans. 1-800-QUIT-NOW in every state. Staffed by tobacco treatment specialists, you know they do up to four to six sessions. Four now, being the budgets have been cut, it's pretty much four, and it's available. Some states offer the the uh, pharmacology, uh, pharmatherapy, and some do not. It, it, budgets have been cut, so it's been eliminated. Uh, some states have eliminated that. You know, most healthcare providers and patients are not familiar with the quit line, so we, we have a responsibility to let them know it uh, is available. Uh, New Hampshire quit line, they have a text to quit. They have text to quit also from the smokefree.gov. Uh, my colleague, uh, Kate uh, McNally down in Keene is a tobacco treatment specialist. So if somebody for, comes from Keene, they have services there. Karen Madison is a nurse practitioner who does full-time tobacco treatment specialist with allergy and asthma down at Bedford Clinic. Uh, we here have a tobacco treatment clinic, which is twice a week. Tuesdays and Thursdays, 9.30 to 11.30, it's free. Uh, so that if you have folks that are in, uh, parents of kids in the PICU NICU, you can refer them to the clinic. Uh, we, I try to see them inside. I'm just one person. So, you know, being everywhere, only God is everywhere. Uh, we have a support group, which is free. We do telephonic support at the same time. People can call in or they can come. Okay, this is our, uh, as you know, our visitor policy. It 
clearly states in there the electronic cigarette is not allowed on our campus. The vapor is considered to be secondhand smoke. We do not know what the chemicals are that are in that, and so it is not allowed on our campus. So if you have a mother breastfeeding in the in the uh, birthroom pavilion and she's smoking the electronic cigarette, it is not allowed on our campus. We have it very clearly uh, in this document. These are the uh, free lozenges that are available. Um, and the instructions are in here. They're put up out. They are put up by our outpatient pharmacy, Linda Sawyer, who is also a tobacco treatment specialist. These are the resources, and I did have a copy over here of resources that are available for you. Um, there's a uh, unbelievable amount of things that are available. So I pass the microphone to Betsy, and I thank you. Okay, so my job is to wrap this up here. I'm going to just help you a little bit with how do you approach those people that are outside smoking, whether they're patients or what, yeah, they're all going, yeah, what do we do? So we're going to give you a little verbiage. How do you do this? Um, <clears throat> I tell my colleagues, I put on my Ellen Pryor smile. I walk, I use the same approach with just about everybody. I put on a big smile. I assume that they know nothing. And I walk up to them and I say, I'm so sorry, but you must not be aware there's no smoking anywhere on our campus, all 225 acres. And they stand there and they smoke and I just say, they go, oh? One of them told me, well, I just, I walked past the sign. Well, that, that's not good enough, you know. No, you can't smoke. You really do have to put the cigarette out. I keep smiling. I'm friendly. I'm positive. I'm upbeat. If you need help, we can offer you these free lozenges at our information desk. It's no problem at all. We don't want you to be uncomfortable. You don't have to quit, but you can't smoke here. You need to put the cigarette out. Thank you so much. And they will generally put it out. Like I say here, I think I have about a 95 to 98% quit uh, not quit, but, you know, getting them to put that cigarette out. So be friendly, be helpful. You want to approach them in a way that decreases the risk of making these people feel on the defensive. They're defensive anyway because they're not supposed to be smoking. They actually all know this. I mean, there's none of them that don't know that they're not supposed to. It's a rare event that somebody doesn't know. Um, be pleasant, but be firm. And, but don't put yourself in harm's way. If you see somebody out there that looks like a character that you don't want to approach, don't approach them. Security can do that for you. That's their job. Um, and if you get into an interaction with someone, even though you've got your best smile on and you feel at all uncomfortable, back away. That's not your job to get hurt. No one should get hurt over this. But I'm telling you, 95 to 98% of the time, if you approach them with the right attitude of not being punitive but saying, oh, you must not know, we'll give you a buy on that one, but you can't smoke. So again, what are we supposed to do? Assess every patient admitted for tobacco use, document that tobacco use in the electronic medical record. If you can be knowledgeable, and that's our hope today between the four of us that we provided you with a lot of knowledge about how to treat tobacco and how to treat nicotine addiction and, and the symptoms of nicotine withdrawal when people get crabby and they get cranky and they don't feel good and they have a headache, those are all symptoms of nicotine withdrawal because after two hours after they smoke, the nicotine level in the brain and the blood drops down, they begin to have symptoms of withdrawal. That's why people get cranky. And it's in fact exactly why people always go and smoke again, because they got to put the nicotine back in the brain, bathe the brain with dopamine that makes them feel better. But that's what we're up against. And that's why when you have an inpatient who's getting a little bit out of control and not happy because we didn't treat them for their nicotine withdrawal, if you, the nurse, are knowledgeable and can say to the provider who may have less knowledge, you know, if we just offer them a patch or we offer them a lozenge gum, something to help with their, their cravings, everybody would be happier here. 
especially the patient. And then the doctors or providers would not be writing those orders, hopefully, for nurse, just take that patient out to smoke because it's easier for us. Okay, so knowledge is very powerful, and you're going to have a very powerful tool by knowing how to help these people and how to help the providers. So encourage those providers to use those evidence-based meds for current smokers. Understand that that nicotine is a powerful addiction. If you kind of get it in your brain and you look at people that way, it's much easier to deal with them. They're not doing it to be malicious. They're doing it because they're addicted, and they don't want to feel bad. They'd rather feel good, and when you smoke, you feel good. When you have nicotine withdrawal, you feel bad. And remember, it's a chronic disease, right? Okay, helping patients quit is a clinician's responsibility. Tobacco users don't plan to fail. Most just fail to plan. Clinicians have a professional obligation to address tobacco use and can have an important role in helping patients plan for their quit attempts. The decision to quit lies in the hands of each patient, but we have the tools and we have the information. I tell my patients that I work with my role, I bring a big bunch of stuff in the room, I tell them, you can see I got a whole bunch of stuff in there, but the baseball bat is noticeably, noticeably missing. My job is not to hit you over the head. My job is to provide you with a toolkit of information that you can use if you want to quit because I truly believe that knowledge is powerful. Basic concepts, treat the tobacco dependence for the serious medical problem that it is, Motivational counseling, as you've heard, plus pharmacotherapy. There's a dose response to counseling. More nicotine patch is better if they need higher levels. Remember, one milligram of nicotine to one cigarette. 20 cigarettes in a pack, 21 milligram patch. Okay? It's easier to remember. How, how do we dose it, if you think of it that way, like uh, Paula went through? Combinations are better. Longer treatment is better. This is not strep throat, nor is it a UTI. We don't just treat you for three days, five days. This may take months of treatment. People have been smoking for 50 years. We're not going to get over it in a week. And we'll see if this one works. So, uh, Wait. There it is. Okay. Be patient, it'll come right up. I hope so. <laughs> I guarantee it all worked perfectly before, but we'll see. Oh, yeah, thank you. Oh, now we got two of them. All right. Where did it go? Here we go. Sorry. So we've come a long way, baby, right? Because these were the ads from the 1950s where doctors were recommending cigarettes. And we certainly have come a long ways from that where we now have um, our clinicians recommending that patients quit smoking. But tobacco is the monkey on our backs. We have not eradicated this problem. It's still going on. It is our responsibility and our role as clinicians to do our very best with asking our patients about quitting, advising them in a strong voice to quit. And hopefully you'll have more information now than you walked in than when you walked in an hour ago.
Does anyone have any questions, please? Mary. No, and You are right. I couldn't agree with you more. They are. Have I been diplomatic enough? There is, yeah, it's outs. We 100% agree with you. We had a really great big sign when we first started. In 2008, we went tobacco-free, as you saw earlier. We had a huge sign on the side of the uh, parking garage. It said, no smoking, tobacco-free campus. But somehow that got taken down and all the little signs around. We've been working very hard with the uh, people who are responsible for that to get signs back up. You can see, if you look carefully, if we all stand sideways, see that it's flat? <laughs> There's a lot of beating the head against the wall with some of the things that go on around here, but we agree there should be better signage. Is there somebody we can email or talk to? I think, uh, what do you think, Ellen? Who's McClellan. Dr. McClellan, Robert McClellan? We have a living, uh, with, uh, Live well. Healthy Living Committee, he's the head of the Healthy Living Committee. So Dr. Robert McClellan, I think if each and <laughs> I would send emails. If you have ideas about things like we need better signage, I would love to see more security helping with this. And what else can we as employees do? We want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And I feel like if we don't actually approach these patients or visitors or whatever, then we really are part of the problem. But I have to tell you, I do it on a regular basis, almost daily in my going to and from just my car. Yes, Dorothy. It's stressful, yes. It's hard. Ellen, we used to have them. Yeah, the lozenges. I think we should readdress that. I think it's a really important part. Those patients are critically ill, and they're, they have those family members have problems. They're highly stressed. The nicotine helps them. The cigarettes help. The nicotine lozenge would do the same for them without smoking on our grounds. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Katie. Right. Um, has tried to quit smoking, um, but because the rest of them have continued, um, it, it hasn't been successful. We highly recommend that if we're counseling a person to quit and there are other smokers in the home, 
that this person that we're counseling to quit, if that's our patient, is going to have a better chance of success if everyone else in the home quits. So I would address the whole family if you could. Thank you so much for, for your attention. But if there are other questions, we're happy to entertain them. But you're right, that's a problem. And, and we do encourage them to quit together. Yeah, that's what motivational interviewing is good for. We can do a whole other session on that sometime. It's awesome. Thank you very much. Oh, I forgot to do this, Ellen. I'm so sorry. Before you leave, <laughs> if anyone's interested in more, next Tuesday, Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds is going to be Dr. Zeller talking about continuing with the COOP legacy and uh, policy change with tobacco. Yeah.